Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, uh, Aaron Lammer, Evan Radliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hey, Max. Uh, how are you guys? How are you holding up? Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It sucks. This whole thing sucks. That's the universal reaction to what's happening now. Eh, not great. Yeah, someone just sent me a text message that said, uh, I'm okay. Everything is terrible. Just like that, you know, that's how it sounds. Uh, who's on the show this week? This week on the show is Ed Young. He is a science writer at The Atlantic. And uh, he was actually on book leave in January and February. And, uh, and then he was called back to The Atlantic to try and cover what is happening in the world. And uh, we talked about it in the interview, but uh, his editors brought him back and said, basically, like, take as big a swing as you can to try and understand the coronavirus and what's happening in the world. And he published a piece last week. It's called How the Pandemic Will End. Uh, And it is exactly that. It is a very, very big swing. It starts with uh, the failures of testing in America, moves to what's going to happen in the short term, then in the medium term, and then the sort of long-term effects of what we're living through now. And uh, I read it and sort of immediately it felt like the first like um it felt like the first thing that had any kind of long view of this um and it was it helped me see a whole lot of things clearly that i hadn't seen before uh and so i called him up and we talked about it and talked about how you report a thing out like this and how he's feeling and also particularly like how the people he talked to for the piece are feeling you know he talked to all of these people who had done pandemic modeling for years and years and years and years and i was particularly interested in like what their experience right now is like. Anyway, it was a good one. I also want to uh, thank Ross Anderson, who's Ed's editor. Ross has been on the show before. He's like an old friend of long form. Longtime friend of the show. Yeah, and he gave me uh, all kinds of dirt about Ed. Ross actually edited his piece, and I talked to him before I talked to Ed. So thanks, Ross. And I just want to add to this. Ed Young is one of those people that we probably should have had on a long time ago. And it's like, we have so many people on lists, and he is one of the best science writers working today, even before all of this. And this is a sort of unfortunate but fortunate moment that we could get him. Yeah, whenever he does finish that book, he'll come on and we'll do the like uh, regular long form episode. But this one's definitely um, going deep on the one piece. I should also say one other thing, uh, which I forgot to mention, is that he wrote a piece two years ago in 2018 about pandemics and how unprepared the world was for what's happening now. So this is something that he's been thinking about uh, personally for a long time. If you are looking to take a big swing, do it with a newsletter with MailChimp. Uh, They are keeping the lights on uh, through these times uh, for this show, and we appreciate it. Thank you to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Ed Young. 
Hey, Ed. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Oh, I appreciate being asked. Um, I'm a big fan of the podcast and... um, I was saying to a friend that, uh, you know, the world is collapsing in and itself and everything is terrible, but at least I got an invitation to go on long form. That's, <laughs> that's a plus. Uh, well, you know, you got to look for the silver lining somewhere, right? Right, 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 right. Uh, I appreciate you doing this, man. I appreciate you uh, finding time. <laughs> time is one of those constructs that now feels both in ample supply, but also like there also seems to be a complete dearth of it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, totally I don't agree. quite remember what day it is. I think <laughs> it's Sunday, I'm told. Sources tell me that it's Sunday. The calendar says it's Sunday evening. Uh, I just put my kids to bed. It's also potentially just one long day now. Right. And it is this funny thing where I, I both feel incredibly busy, tired all the time, and totally bored. Yeah, absolutely. Like the uh, the hour when I'm not frantically working feels like that bit is Groundhog Day and everything else is like a Michael Bay movie. (laughs) It's totally true. I also feel like um, people's availabilities are very different now. I've said to several people, yeah, no, I can, I'm totally free to talk. I'm going to be here from about four o'clock tomorrow until the summer. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, I've got no plans. And yet I'm on phone calls all the time. Anyway, this is a, this is a phone call I'm very happy to be on. Here's my first question, Ed. Um, how are you, man? Like, how are you, how are you personally? Uh, I'm, I'm good, thanks. I'm holding up. I am safe. Uh, I am healthy to my knowledge. And, you know, I definitely feel that I am in a pretty privileged situation. I've got a partner, so I've got someone with me all, all the time. I've got a nice place. And I think most importantly and relevantly to this conversation, I have a job that is very relevant and feels very important right now. So like my duty in the middle of all this feels incredibly clear and pertinent. And I think that that feels like a huge blessing. Like it takes a lot of time, but I'm not scrambling around trying to find a way of making myself useful. Like I I know exactly what I need to do. How would you define that duty? What is it uh, that you know so exactly that you need to do? So just do the journalism, explain to people what is going on, cut through the increasing tangle of misinformation, confusion, fear, panic, all of that. Um, Just do the job. Um, Tell people what is happening as clearly and accurately as possible. Does doing the job right now feel different than it has over the last 10 or 15 years as you've been doing this? Like, does the job feel different or uh, do the stakes just feel higher? So yes and no, same and different. So the difference, I think, is that the stakes and the urgency feel much, much higher, you know, orders of magnitude higher. I was telling a friend earlier this weekend, normally when I write things that are about a pressing societal issue. Like I do a lot of writing about conservation issues, for example, and sometimes I write about climate. I've written about pandemic preparedness before. Um, All of those pieces feel like they're about things that need to get solved, but in timeframes of, say, months or years. And I feel like my contribution journalistically is to shine a light on small parts of it but on the assumption that like no one person is going to radically change policy and like the policy changes that I would hope for would be in the order of months or years. But 
now I'm writing pieces that I think are affecting people's choices and lives and hopefully the direction of the entire country on an, like an hourly basis. You know, now the changes that I hope to see, I hope to see immediately, like right now. And that does create a massive sense of urgency, a sense of pressing incredibly high stakes. And that's, it's a burden. I, like when I write a piece about some very, very low stakes, funny, weird, like animal behavior story, I still agonize about whether I've got it right, whether it's accurate, whether I've been fair and, you know, whether I've missed any angles. So to now have to be writing like the piece we're about to talk about, a sweeping 5,000 word piece about a pressing, urgent, life or death global catastrophe. It's it's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a lot. <laughs> but um, like I said, it's it's the job. Um, given that I'm in a position where I'm not facing a lot of the other stresses that people are facing, this feels like a burden that I should and can shoulder. I do want to start, if we can, with that piece you wrote in 2018. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll talk about the piece you wrote last week. And I'm also interested in how you decided to sort of leave book leave and take on that duty you just described. But as I was reading the piece last week, I remembered the story that you wrote in 2018 and went back and read it. And there's this line about two thirds of the way through that has been haunting me since I read it, which is, this long list of all of the things that America has going for it in the face of a hypothetical pandemic. And the last mm -hmm. line of the graph is, America is as ready to face down new diseases as any country in the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, it's so <laughs> haunting to read that now. And I wonder what you, uh, what you think of that line. Yeah, it's, um, it is really interesting to revisit that piece because I think, um, you know, people on Twitter have rediscovered that piece and the way it's usually framed is you know, Ed Yong was writing about this two years ago, you know, saw it coming, predicted it was going to happen. And, you know, firstly, I'm only one of many, many people who've been writing about this, both in magazine features, books, whatever. So a large community of writers and health experts in the main predicted that something like this was going to happen. But you know, it's fairly easy to predict a pandemic is going to happen because it was always just such an inevitability. It's very, very hard to predict not just how, when, and all the particulars of it happening, but also the world's response to it. And I think that has been truly shocking to me and also to most of the other health experts whom I've spoken to. And that line in particular that's sort of the, the starting point for the new piece, which is that, sure, no country in the world was ready. And I think it was pretty clear from that 2018 piece that the United States was not ready. But I think that it was also, you could have also put good money on the United States being readier than most. Right. And, and certainly like a degree of ready that would mean that things would be bad, but not necessarily like catastrophic. And I think that illusion for many has just been completely shattered by the events of the last two months. I think the United States has, despite 
having so many advantages going for it has just you know facepalmed in the face of this crisis in a way that to many people was quite literally unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, the, in the piece you wrote last week, another one of the really kind of haunting things was all of these folks whose job it is to model pandemics like this, none of them took into account that we wouldn't be able to do basic testing. Yep, exactly. Like even the worst case scenario models didn't account for the current scenario we're in. Right. Yep. You know, it really was beyond the pale. And, you know, these are some of the most intelligent people I know on this topic. These are people who's, for whom preparedness literally is their jobs and people who've been warning about this for years and years and years. And even they didn't see the exact ways in which we've made mistakes. That should be, I hope, a truly humbling experience and I think should inform um, the way we think about these issues moving forward. You know, one of the themes I think in the piece and that I hope we can talk about in this interview is the necessity of imagination and the consequences of a failure of it. There are several places in the piece where I, where I note that an inability to envision what this kind of catastrophe really would be like and how it would play out, even among people who thought about it the most deeply, has been one of the things that has led us into the unenviable position that we're currently in. It does feel to me like this is just somehow too big for like the human mind to comprehend, you know, mm -hmm. uh, its vastness and its scale. I mean, it feels too big to wrap our hands around. But I want to go back to those experts that you talked to for the piece because as I was reading it, I was trying to figure out what their experience must be like. So the people who had spent time, lots and lots of time, thinking about this, feeling like it was an inevitability, what do you think this is like for them? And I guess in a way you're sort of a subset of that community of people. You wrote about it a lot, have thought about it a lot. Like for people that it did feel real for I wonder what it's like living through this now. I think it's horrible. I'm not sure it's horrible in a way that's actually that distinct from the way it's horrible for the rest of us, just because their lives are being uprooted in exactly the same way. You know, they're also going through social distancing. And I think that, um, you know, I'll tell you what, the one thing I absolutely do not see from anyone, and, and definitely including me, is any sense of I told you so. You know, mm -hmm. no one is thinking, you know, if only you'd listened to me, things would have been better. I think there's just this communal sense of deep tragedy that the world, despite the warnings, couldn't sort of rise above its own, you know, the worst aspects of its own character. Um, the thing that I really wanted to drive home in that 2018 piece was this idea of panic and neglect that we go through cycles where in the middle of a crisis, we freak out and we channel as many resources and, and as much money as possible into containing the problem. And then as soon as it's over, as soon as peacetime is restored, we start slipping back into normal. And that was sort of why I wrote the piece in 2018 when I did, at the point when there was no pandemic, when we were literally in the middle of that peacetime and things were atrophying. The whole point was to say, this is when we're the most vulnerable and this is when actions will have the greatest impact. And I think that everyone who has been sounding that alarm is just now feeling this sense of 
shared societal regret almost that not enough was done early enough. No one who writes about this stuff ever wants to be right. Right. We we would much rather that in 20 years time, people look back on the work and think, well, they were blowing smoke up our asses. <laughs> nothing, like, nothing like that's happened. That young guy um, has no idea what he's yeah, talking about. Exactly. Right. That would be miraculous. And I sort of feel the same about the current piece. Like it's, it talks about a lot of very dire projections. And if in a year's time, people look back at it and think, well, we didn't even come close to that, then that will either be because things were much better than we thought or because we took the right steps to avert catastrophe. And both of those would be fine with me. Well, let's talk about the new piece. And, and I certainly want to talk about the content of it, but I'm also interested in, in the process mm -hmm. and how you put something like that together. And so maybe that's a, a decent place to start. So you were on book leave. I was. You wrote a piece, I think, in January, another couple in February. But with something evolving this fast, how do you approach trying to take like a longer view? You know, like um, how does the idea for how the pandemic will end come to mind? Yeah, so um, I was on Bookly. I started in October. I had 10 months. So by the time the first inklings of the pandemic were happening, it was in January. I was three months into it and finally like getting some momentum in. And at the time I was writing, uh, my agreement with The Atlantic was to write one piece a week for them. And I think it became re re immediately obvious that so much was happening on this front that it was impossible to keep up with the news and do a weekly piece while also doing work on the book. So the first two pieces I wrote were, were quite specific in scope. So one was about this R0 number, um, this epidemiological concept that was the center of much discussion. And then the other was just a broad take about how what pandemics reveal about the societies that they hit. And then I went back to book leave and I, it was a difficult decision because I obviously had written that 2018 piece and the magazine was starting to ramp up coverage of the pandemic, but I just couldn't see a way of doing that while still meeting the book deadline that I knew I had to meet. When in time are you talking about now? Like, well, what date is this? This was early February was when I think things were kicking off. Um, you were starting to see cases outside of China and... I got an email towards the end of February from the uh, head of our website saying, could you come back for a month? And it was just a very obvious decision to make because I think at that point, it was clear that this was not just you know another epidemic, but this was going to be the great challenge of our times. And it just felt increasingly untenable to be doing anything else and coming back into it, I was trying to work out how I could be most useful and how I could sort of live up to the bar that the rest of the magazine had been setting. And I had a call with um, my editors, um, Sarah Lasco and Paul Biseglio, the first day I came back. And I pitched them a few like ideas for small pieces. And what they said very clearly was, we want you to take the biggest possible swing at this. We don't want you to spend a ton of time and energy just knocking out small, like, I don't know, 800 words, here's a new study that might be an important type story. We want you to take the biggest 
most sweeping look at what is happening. And so we decided to make it a kind of conceptual sequel to the 2018 piece, which asked, is America ready for the next pandemic? Clearly the answer is no. So now what? So the thing that they said, which I think really made the world of difference was not only go big, but also take your time. Hmm. And and I, I can't stress how invaluable that is to have people say, you've been out of the game, you're back in, we're not expecting you to file your first piece tomorrow. We want it to be as good as possible. And if that means taking the next two weeks to do it, take those two weeks. You know, how few journalists nowadays get that kind of mandate from their editors. Um, and it made all the difference. So you get this space to go take the biggest swing you can. This thing is evolving so fast. Mm -hmm. What's your first step? Who do you call? So I started calling several of the people who I talked to for the first piece, the people who I thought would have the clearest, clearest eyed and the most thoughtful view of what was to lie ahead. And I think I also, it was clear to me that one of the gaps in the first piece I did which interviewed people who work in hospitals and who work on vaccines and epidemiology and global health and all of that, was a lack of contribution from uh, social scientists, from historians, from anthropologists. And it was really clear that those people would be crucial for defining the fourth act of the piece, which was the aftermath. I think quite early on, it became clear to me what the structure of the piece should be, which was this four-part look at um, the you know, past, present and future of the pandemic. And one of the themes in the piece was that this failure of imagination has cost us this inability yeah. to to conceive of a situation where testing might fail, this inability to look at what was going on in China and think we might be next, this inability to look past that rhetoric of exceptionalism and to imagine a case when the so-called greatest country in the world would prove to be one of the greatest cautionary tales in the world. I think to avoid making that mistake, we need to be able to imagine what the world might look like afterwards hmm and to start laying the, if not political seeds, then at least you know, mental seeds for that right now. Ed, I wonder if you'd be willing, if we could just walk through those four sort of sections of the piece quickly for anyone who didn't read it and just kind of talk them through. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. We can do that. So the first section, uh, the first act is essentially what the hell just happened. Right. Totally. Ed, what, what the hell happened, man? How did this happen? Yeah, the, so the first act sets up the fact that we are doing considerably worse than people thought we were going to do. And the main reason for that is a lack of adequate testing. Through various problems, the US failed to develop a good diagnostic test for this new virus. And that combined with the properties of the virus itself, its ability to spread from one host to another before triggering symptoms, meant that it was allowed to gain a foothold in the country and to spread everywhere before anyone had any idea. And that 
original sin just cost us everything. It meant that the United States' um, decentralized healthcare system becomes its greatest vulnerability. Suddenly, no state can help each other. All states are competing for the same dwindling resources. And then on top of that, you have a federal government that is bereft of expertise because it's hollowed out a lot of its centers of expertise over the last few years. And you have a leader who seems either unwilling or unaware of the actions that need to be taken. And all of those qualities meant that the country that should have been most prepared just failed catastrophically. Did um did you talk to Fauci for the story? Yeah, I did very briefly. I sent him an email and uh, he called me one night while he was in a green room in just before an interview. So yeah, we did we did have a quick chat. It's kind of wild thinking about that guy's experience right now. I know, right? Um and you know, I think Fauci's another one of these people who understood what was at stake and if you look back at the 2018 piece there's a paragraph where I talk about how preparedness seems like an abstract concept, but actually it comes down to very tangible things and people. You know, it's the doctor, it's the um, vaccine, it's all of these things that actually exist and you can hold. And I have a quote from Fauci that's something like, um, you know, it's like links in a chain, one weak link and it all breaks. You need no weak links. And the testing problem was our weakest link. You know, there were a few, but that's just a, a perfect example of what he was talking about. Like that one thing really broke a lot of other things. So what happens next? So what happens next? Um, so to be clear, we're in trouble. Things do not look good right now, and they are going to look worse as the pandemic spreads, not only in the major hubs you've already heard about, like New York and Seattle, but then around the country. What we're seeing now will inevitably get worse over the next couple of weeks because the disease has a long fuse, and people who have been infected will only start showing symptoms shortly and then will take a while before they get to a situation where they need to be in ICUs. So to some extent, we know that no matter what we do right now, things are going to be bad. But to avert the worst case scenarios, there are things we can do. And you know, without going into all the detail in the piece, there are four things which are basically we desperately need to get more masks and other medical supplies to protect healthcare workers. We need to do widespread testing, if at all possible, to work out where the virus is. We need, in the meantime, to adhere to social distancing, physical distancing. So I say in the piece that there are only two groups of people right now. There's group A, who's everyone in the medical effort or efforts to support it by making supplies and so on. And then everyone else is in group B. And your duty as people in group B is very urgent and very clear. And that is to stop the chains of transmission by staying away from other people physically and by isolating yourself until such time as the other two measures, more supplies and more testing can be achieved. And to do all of those three things well, we need the fourth thing, which is clear and coordinated leadership from the White House. And, you know, I I think three of those four things may be achievable. <laughs> How does the fourth one make you feel? I mean, uh, understanding this on the level that you do, spending as much time with the people who understand it uh, the best in the world, 
just what is it what is it like for you to um have so little confidence in the fourth option i mean it doesn't feel great i do think that with a challenge of this magnitude coordination is essential i think to a degree in the absence of it different local and state level leaders will rise to the occasion and do their best we're already seeing that we've already seen that but the lack of that clear from the top leadership is a huge problem. It is hurting the response. And I think it'll it'll lead to an unequal distribution of that hurt across the country. What do you mean by that, the unequal distribution? I think how the country does will vary from state to state to city to city, depending on how effective local leaders are. You know, and that should obviously not be the way. Um, I spoke to an epidemiologist earlier who made this point that um, he hates using military metaphors to describe these things. But let's say you go with this idea that we are now in wartime and we're fighting a war against an enemy, which is this virus. Currently, the United States is fighting that war as 50 separate states, which is ridiculous. You know, you need a general. And in the absence of that, things just become harder. I do think that it's a huge problem that every press briefing is the source of more misinformation, more conspiracy theories. And all of this was predictable and obvious from 2016. I wrote a piece in December 2016 about how a Trump administration would react to a pandemic, even before the big 2018 one about whether America was ready. And a lot of the problems that we're seeing now, this propensity for misinformation, for buying into conspiracy theory thinking, that was evident from the start. You know, it was evident when Donald Trump was a citizen and it is playing out now that he's the president. And I think the thing that saddens me about it is that the information architecture that we're currently living in when people get their news from incredibly polarized, hyperpartisan sources means that people across this country are getting very different understandings of this pandemic at a very fundamental level, not just like what needs to happen now, but even basic stuff like, is this thing the flu or is it not the flu? Like really, really obvious basic information. And people who are addressing millions of Americans every day are getting it wrong. And that's, I find that scary and I find it sad. And I think it makes it very difficult to predict the consequences of this crisis. I really thought at first that this was going to be so big that that couldn't happen. Yeah. It felt like in this weird way, we had been waiting for something big enough that it was undeniable. And it just, it's hard to process the fact that that hasn't happened here. I mean, I feel two ways about it. Like on the one hand, on the one hand, I felt very pessimistic that anything would change. And mainly because, you know, we know that people make decisions and process information according to their own identities and, and values and beliefs. And even in a crisis like this, I think almost especially in a crisis like this, those psychological concepts are really important and people's mental and emotional resources are really taxed. So, you know, if you have to accept that the person in the White House press room is lying to you about how America is doing in a pandemic, 
you have to also then accept that maybe he's been lying to you all this time and maybe you were really wrong about him. And, you know, there's all these layers of identity crisis. And I think it's so much more preferable to think, no, everyone else is wrong and that everything I thought was right and true about the world is still right and true. And, you know, and I can tell you that a ton of people who read my piece have thought that because I've got a lot, not the majority, but say 10% of the 1,000 plus emails in my inbox are for people making exactly this argument. You know, uh, this was a hit piece on the president. This, You are clearly a Democrat. Your political bias is showing, blah, 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 blah. And to be very clear, I am not a Democrat. I am not American. I don't get to vote in your elections. And it is neither my goal to either condemn or save the country. What I care about are the people in it, many of whom are my friends and now my family. And it would give me no greater joy than for America to come out of this well and healthy and strong. But you can't do a piece like this without talking about politics because politics is half of the reason why we're in this situation that we are. And I think that's going to force a really uncomfortable reckoning with a lot of people. Right, so so the, the second bit of this, the counterpoint to my pessimism that anything would change is that sadly, I think that this is going to be so devastating that it will draw a very clear line between actions and consequences. You know, now, if you get up there and you make some proclamation about restoring X number of jobs or boosting the economy or whatever, the consequences of that promise, whether it was made truly or falsely, won't be visible for months, maybe years. And then people can argue the toss about whether you were telling the truth or not, to what extent it was right. But now, if you get up there and you say, everything's fine, in a week or so, it will be very obvious that everything is not fine. If you say, everyone can get a test, the next day, the people who believe you are going to be unable to get a test. And I just think that because of that, because of that immediacy of consequence, this might be a thing that even Trump can't just bend to his whim. You know, this is not an aspect of reality that he can bulldoze his way over with rhetoric. I, I keep thinking, and it this is I just think this is one of the most heartbreaking stories to come out of this, you know, after um, Trump tweeted about hydrochloroquine and azithromycin, there was that story of one couple who took a chloroquine salt that was used as part of like their aquarium care. And the husband died. And the wife was quoted by, I think, a local news station as saying, you know, don't listen to the president. They were up there saying that Basically, there was a, almost like a, there was a cure. Um, and that's sort of what I mean. And I just, it kills me that it might take tragedy to make that chain of causality clear. What do you think is going to happen, Ed? What, what happens now? 
I'm going to leave the listeners to read the end game bit of this. Um, <laughs> yeah. The really quick summary is that we're in this for the long haul unless we do something really daft. Um, the end game is we play a protracted whack-a-mole game with this virus until such time as we can make a Mac vaccine, which may be one to two years. And then after that, the world changes. I don't know how it will change. Um, we'll have mental health problems. We might get a refocusing of foreign policy towards public health. People might wash their hands more often as a matter of practice. But the ending of the piece, which I don't want to give away because I do think it matters, is sort of about looking ahead to see two ways America could react to COVID-19. It could either turn outwards or inwards. I know which I would prefer, and I certainly know which one of those options leaves us in better stead for the next inevitable pandemic. And I think it's the one where we turn outwards and where we brace an ethic of cooperation both across the globe and at every inner fractal level from between states within this country, between communities within a city. I think we need that. And I hope that the piece helps to develop the seeds of that even now. You know, I said I had a thousand emails in my inbox. Fortunately, only a minority of those are hate mail. The majority of them are actually really positive, and a few of them have really, really got to me in a good way. What are those? What are the ones that have uh, have gotten to you in a good way? So, um, so one of them was from a woman who said that, you know, she was social distancing. She's a rule follower, but she didn't understand why she was doing it, and it was starting to. She was starting to find it hard. She's got three kids. And she just wanted someone to be straight with her and not try and push her one way or the other, but just to lay out what was happening, why it was happening, and what the future might look like. And she said that she feels invigorated, like emboldened to stay the course. And that's that's what I want. It matters to make people feel informed and empowered. You know, there were a few others... A lot of people said wrote about feeling braver after reading it, like better able to face the future, even though that future sounded pretty ghastly. At least they had a sense of what was coming, and at least they some of them talked about really wanting to work harder to lay the foundations of the world that they were hoping for that ability to motivate people at a time like this gives me hope. I was talking to a colleague, um, Van Newkirk, who's a tremendous writer at The Atlantic and a, someone who I've looked up to for some time. You know, we were t- I was talking about how hard it is to be working on something like this where it feels like, it almost feels a bit futile, you know, that it feels like I'm not going to change the White House's posture on this. You know, I even if this piece is very well read, which it has been, I'm neither optimistic nor naive enough to believe that it's going to lead to immediate policy change. So why do it? And Van said very wisely that, so he writes a lot about racism in the US and he draws inspiration from the work of people like Dubois um, writing about reconstruction in that 
it might not have changed policy at the time, but it laid the intellectual and historical groundwork for people to carry on pushing and fighting later on. And Van's line, which I think is really smart, is that if we are consigned to only learn from hindsight, then someone still has to provide that hindsight. And I think I'm thinking about that a lot now. That person who wrote you and said that uh, they felt more brave to face the future, does doing this work make you feel that way yourself? Less so? Like, what does it mean for you? I think um, yes and no. I mean, I I wrote the piece and in, in many ways I reacted to it as a reader while I was writing it. Like, it did give me some hope. I know that it helps me to think about what the future might look like and what what needs to happen because otherwise you it's so easy to lapse into this cynical nihilism of nothing we do matters and my friend Rose Eveleth um, hosts the Flash Forward podcast which if any of your listeners have not listened to before I would highly recommend it it's a it's one of the greats uh, absolutely i mean just a spectacular piece of journalism and so singular in its in its ability to imagine what a better future would be like and this is Rose's kind of mantra um, that even if we believe the future might be bad, it still behooves us to imagine a good one and it's not set. We get to decide what it might look like and we get to work towards it. And it's part of what I wanted this piece to do. If a failure of imagination is one of the things that has cost us till now, then let's at least try to not make that mistake again. Yeah. I can try and sit with that for a while. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's it has helped me to pull the pieces together. You know, I think I was in the same situation as most of our readers and our listeners when I dove back into this, which was just, this story is everywhere and everything. And I think a lot of the modern news enterprise is just... I'm trying to find the right, right way of phrasing it without sounding antagonistic to people doing amazing day-to-day -day reporting. But it's like, its weakness is that for a fast-moving, continually changing story, when you're doing necessary but piecemeal reporting, it's very hard to see that big picture. And, you know, as a reader, when I read big stories not on my beat that are of this form... I get very easily lost. You know, it's like seeing this landscape through a thousand different keyholes. And what I really wanted to do for myself and everyone else was to unite them. And I think that's one of the things that I think this Atlantic is very good at doing. And one of the things I'm really grateful to my editors for for, for giving me that space to do that. Well, that was, that was why, you know, I mean, I, I read it and basically immediately sent you a note asking you to come have this conversation. And then you know, in the next 24, 36 hours, I feel like the piece was everywhere, including Obama tweeting it out, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it was because of that, which was the whole country is grasping at some semblance of a big picture, you know, and mm -hmm. it's been very, very hard to find. Yeah. And I think you know, I started this interview talking about the sense of duty and, and responsibility. And I think this is this is what 
I think journalists are trained for, right? Like if not this, then what? The whole point of us is to absorb ungodly amounts of information, create some kind of sense out of it and tell people about that. And uh, so Jeff Goldberg, our editor-in-chief at The Atlantic, um, has been saying for well over a month now that we have been training for this. Um, mm. You know, we didn't know exactly that this was going to happen, but all of our skill set, all of our values, they lead up to this moment. And in some ways, it feels inadequate when you think about the sacrifices that people like healthcare workers are making, when you think about the people who are putting their lives at risk, just like manning groceries and delivering the post. It feels like a a weird thing to self-aggrandize, like the ability to listen to a lot of information and to write like a flowing 5,000 word piece out of it. But I think a different way of looking at it is that one of our jobs is to bear witness to what is happening. And one of the things that a lot of my friends have said to me that they need to do in order to cope with all of this is to switch off, to just unplug, you know, maybe read a couple of stories a week. Some people have specifically said that they appreciated the long piece I did because it allows them to just go, okay, I'm going to take a breath now and, you know, just emerge from this ocean of news. And of course, I don't get to do that. You know, none of us who are covering the story get to do that. We have to drown ourselves in it all the time. You know, I, my worst day was just reading a constant stream of first person pieces from healthcare workers talking about how bad it is on the front lines right now. Yeah. And it's not the biggest sacrifice in the world by far, but it's not a small thing either. And, and I think that that is a burden that we can shoulder, that we are uniquely well placed to shoulder and that we must in order to do our job well. If this is the moment that you've been training for, if this is like the uh, the defining story of your life, at least so far, do you feel ready for it? I feel I feel as ready as I've ever been. I've been a science writer for fourteen years now. I've been at the Atlantic for five years. I think it's left me in good stead to do my best possible work um, right now. I think I can't envisage a place whose values would allow me to do better work. I do feel ready. I feel up to the task. Um, I think it's going to be hard, but I hope it's enough. I don't know if it will be, but I think I feel... At the very least, I feel confident that that I can do my best. My whole plan was to um, ask you about giraffes now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but I don't know, man. I mean, you know, you're working on this book. It's about animals. You had a great piece recently on the state of giraffes in the world. Like, how... How are you going to get back to that from here? Like, where, that feels like a completely different planet, right? You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think it was very clear um, that when the Atlantic asked me to come back from book leave, they originally said for a month, and I said yes. 
and my editor, my book editor said yes. And I think it's very clear now that like <laughs> a month takes us, you know, from that time, a month takes us to mid-April. We're not going to be, this is still going to be very much a part of our lives then and for a bit longer. So I, I don't know how I'm going to get back into it, but I will do. And um you know, I look forward to a time when we can sort of shift back into a happier mind space. Um, I think that we're living at a time right now when the natural world has unexpectedly visited horror upon us. And I think it will be necessary as part of the healing process to remind ourselves that the natural world is largely full of wonder and joy and fascination and all the rest. So the book is on the sensory worlds of other animals. So how other creatures that share the same space and planet that we live on experience reality in a completely different way because they see different colors, because they smell different smells, because some of them sense the world through echoes and electricity and magnetic fields. Um, so it's about trying to give people a grander sense of everything they felt familiar with through the eyes and ears and noses and paws and everything else of other creatures around them. And, you know, I think the topic is breathtaking. I think the book that I am now halfway through um, <laughs> and will be halfway through for some months yet, I feel, um, I think that I think until this big piece that we've been talking about was going to be my best work. Um, and I still hope it'll be up there. You know, I think for people who've enjoyed what I've written before, just you wait. There's um, there's some really good <laughs> stuff to come. Well, um, when that book comes out, you come back on the show, it'll be a very different moment uh, right. than the one we are currently living in. Uh, but I'm glad that in this one, you're doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm very grateful to everyone who's taking the time to read the work at the moment. I think it's um, it's difficult stuff. And I think at the moment, reading anything sort of takes a toll. So I am grateful to the, to the readers. Ed, uh, take care of yourself, man. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Be safe. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks so much to Ed for writing that piece, for taking the time, for going off book leave, uh, for doing the work. Thank you, Ed. And thanks very much to Liz Neely for setting up the audio on Ed's side. It sounded perfect, Liz. Thank you. We will be back next week. Stay home. Stay safe. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.